0: Wait, so after the survey results about your feet,
1: have you done a barefoot episode? Uh, no, but I wore sandals and I'm figuring that... What's the point of the survey? Variety. It's one of the things you would program into an AI thing that was making subjective judgments about whether it's good. We change things up, we don't do the same thing every week, Stan. But you've been doing the same thing, you've been wearing shoes. I know, I have been (laughs) doing the same thing, yeah.
0: Oh, man. So, you, do you think you'll do any more barefoot episodes?
1: Yeah, we'll do some more barefoot episodes and I'd like you to do some barefoot episodes too. We want to shock people. I don't
0: want to be barefoot though.
1: Oh, uh, well, that's, that's probably why you should do it. I'll do Get a barefoot episode zone.
0: if you do a topless one.
1: Uh, See? We'll have a conversation about this later. <laughs> you can wear a bra if it makes you feel If we can naked. do some CGI and use the Arnold Schwarzenegger thing underneath there. I mean, the old Arnold oh, Schwarzenegger. Oh, what is it yeah. called? Fa- um. Deep Fake Fake deep. fake. Yeah, but
0: instead of a face, it mm-hmm. changes your body. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's great.
1: Somebody complained about the animation that Cody did that it didn't look anything like us. Did you read that? No, I didn't see that comment. What did they say? They said that it uh, it, it didn't didn't look like didn't look anything. I it looks exactly like us.
0: (laughs) Great, great burn. (laughs) I think it looks like us too. I don't know what he's talking about.
1: Well, did you want to get in a conversation about that? No, but I think we should change our body positions a little bit. Just change your body position a little bit so that we can superimpose a deep fake image of Cody's cartoon onto your body. Oh, yeah. that's where you're Go going ahead. with that. Yeah, I remember yeah, that. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, yeah. Anyway. Okay. Got enough body movement. Okay. Cool. All right. What do we do today, Stan? Oh,
0: yeah. So, welcome everyone to the traveling <laughs> Podcast. <laughs> My name is Stan Prokopenko, I'm an art teacher, I'm an artist and I run Proko.com and I do some AI stuff on the side.
1: I'm Marshall Vandruff, I am an art teacher as well and I draw. On the side. (laughs) On the side.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so in this podcast episode, on this radio show, we are going to be taking some voicemail questions. That's
1: the we're just taking a bunch of voicemails. I think it's time that we did. For the last number of episodes, we have dictated the terms of the topic whether you were interested or not, and this is the time for you to I think we didn't do a voicemail
0: a few episodes ago.
1: Yeah, so this is repentance. Yeah. yeah. So
0: now we're going to do one of just voicemails. Just voicemails. Let's do it. And we haven't heard these. No, I haven't heard these. Yeah. Just so you guys know we Marshall and I don't hear any of the voicemails before they're played to us during all the episodes. It's true. How
2: you doing, hey, down fellas, love the podcast. My name's Danny. Um, yeah, quick question. Um, myself, taught want to be comic book artist, and I'm wondering how you go about getting a mentor in this day and age. I know it's easy with emails and texts and social media and stuff, but you always hear stories of Alex Toast would take letters from young kids and write back in depth about their work and critique them and do that on an ongoing basis, on a monthly basis. I get people's schedules are hectic with deadlines and stuff, but I'm wondering how you go about approaching a professional artist to be a mentor in that capacity. Thanks, guys. Love the show again. Cheers. Bye-bye.
1: So he's referring to Tim Gula approaching Alex Toth and, and, and saying, I want to be your mentor, and Alex saying yes.
0: I don't know if he was referring to that, but that type yeah. of story. Yeah. yeah, did he say Tim? Maybe? Well, he didn't
1: mention Tim, but he was talking about Alex Toth as a mentor. Oh, he was he, talking he, yeah, about yeah. Him. yeah. Oh, okay, I, th- I thought he was. Some students have the audacity to approach even world famous talent and say, "I want you to be my mentor." And the obvious responses, I am sorry, I am very busy. (laughs) Yeah. And then sometimes they have the audacity to say, listen to me. You will regret not having me as your mentee. And if you can convince them, then the conviction comes from uh, what's in it for them.
0: So, to increase your odds of them saying yes, you have to be mentorable. Good point. You have to be someone that somebody would want to mentor. That means you have to be likable. They don't want to talk to someone who's annoying and maybe disrespectful or um, who they don't think even has a chance.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, people have opinions. Mm-hmm. Someone might look at an artist and say, yeah, you're, you're way, you're too far. I can't help you. Mm-hmm. Or they might just think that. It's natural for us to think that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, And they might just not want to spend, put that effort in. But if they see some kid who has the drive and puts in the time and is already showing signs of skill, they might want to get some of that credit of like, ooh, I can help them out and then they'll give me credit for helping them. Yeah. That's what, that's the part of like, what is it, what's in it for me? Yeah. That's the answer is they'll get credit for for making you. These stories you tell of, you know, someone getting trained by someone else and then that person looks like a master because they trained Bridgman, you know. Right. Or... Like, who Bridgman trained Rockwell, right? That, that's right. You, you know, like Rockwell Bridgman and... seems like a god because he ch- he mentored Rockwell. Yeah. You know, you, you, so if you are mentorable, then you have a much higher chance of bet getting a mentor.
1: And promising. is I, you're, you're talking about being mentorable, but also promising that...
0: Promis- yes, yeah, mentorable yeah. and well, that's part of being mentorable, I, I think.
1: Yeah. 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 You're worth mentoring.
0: Worth mentoring, yeah. The other thing though is paying people. (laughs) If you're not mentorable, you can still pay people to mentor you which is the less attractive option. Yeah. But you know, you can uh, there's people on Patreon, skilled artists Mm -hmm. who you can pay them a certain amount per month and they will have a Skype session with you once every few weeks or something, whatever they everyone has a different thing that they sell. I know one is Steven Bauman. Mm-hmm. He's got a waiting list at this point because he's actually a really good mentor. Yeah. Um, so, it's not as easy anymore but yeah, he has a Patreon where you can sign up, pay him like a hundred bucks a month and and have a Skype session with him. That's a great deal because yeah. if you come to him and you say, hey, mentor me for free, he's gonna be like, no, I, I don't have time, I'm sorry. But if you help me buy dinner, I'll, I'll, I'll give you an hour of my time.
1: Yeah. Um, so that's and the other option if you are paying a mentor you are the client the mentor is in the, the the supplier you are uh, interviewing the mentor you are deciding whether this is worth your money if you go after someone who is world- class how are you going to pay them enough if their yeah. time is worth even dollars an hour class. pardon he is world-class and isn't and he's affordable
0: 100 bucks a month I think is for like a I, I don't want to. Yeah, but that's that's. You could look at his Patreon, but it is affordable. Yes. If he's world class and he's affordable, but he's got a waiting list. Yeah. So now it's like now it's harder to.
1: Yeah. But yeah. Get on the waiting list. What, what? You 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 mentioned buying dinner. One of the things that you could do if you've got two or three of you, who say, look, we admire this artist. We know this artist's time is valuable. But we will take you to a dinner at restaurant of your choice or a lunch, restaurant of your choice, if you will give us two hours of time, you can order anything you want, everybody pitches into it and then you come prepared to ask them the most important questions. And if you get someone to do that twice a year, you're getting mentoring.
0: Why Why are you wincing? If someone came to me with that, I would say no. Why? Because then I know I would feel pressured to, to, to give them something back. They bought me dinner.
1: Yeah. It's you like, were, okay, now I owe you something. You, but you're the thing you're giving them is your time. I
0: would still feel the pressure okay. that that time wasn't enough. They I know they're expecting something more than just that one dinner.
1: What if they aren't? What if they Oh, spe- come on. What if they the, cuz they come to you with a series of questions. Yeah. Say tell us a story of how you got started. Oh, here's another oh, thing. Oh, so Do, that dinner is the mentor is session. Is the mentorship. Yes. Okay.
0: They'd have to pitch it well enough to yes. say that I don't expect anything afterwards then I'd be like, okay, now I'm open to it.
1: But pitching to yeah. your mentor is a, is, is a preliminary to pitching to any, any uh, potential client for a project. Yeah. You're, you're trying to convince them. Do not approach a person who you want to mentor you and ask them questions that they have already answered in interviews on the internet that you have not paid attention to. Isaac Asimov was asked to be interviewed by an interviewer and Asimov asked him a few questions and he told the guy, you do not know my work well enough to get an interview with me. Well, Because one of the things that becomes tiresome to people in the industry is they get the same question over and over. So find out what they've already said, then you can question into the gaps. The the point that I Asimov is making is that there's, there needs to be a certain amount of respect for what is already out there. So if you right. respect that and then you come in, not to show your knowledge but to say, look, we've read everything that you've said but we've got some questions and you have not talked about these first few jobs, we want to ask you about that and then if they give you their time, take it seriously. Yep. And It was in the early 90s that Justin Sweet wanted to interview me. He was my student at Fullerton Community College and he sat me down and asked me a series of questions, he recorded them and I answered the best I could but I answered for any students that I could. A year, later, uh, a year later he wanted to interview me again and that next year he said, last year I asked you this and you said this and he did that several times and I thought everything I answered, he took those answers seriously enough to remind me of the exact wording that I did and there was something that clicked in my brain. Mm-hmm. This guy takes it seriously. And that makes him more mentorable. Indeed. Because you know
0: that all the effort you put in to help this person is worth taking the effort to yes. do so because it will actually help them. Yes. If you think people will not take you seriously and take it for granted, then it's, it's just a waste of time.
1: He told me a decade later that every time I mentioned a movie, every time I mentioned a book, every time I mentioned an author, he wrote it down, which I always noticed that he did. Mm -hmm. But he also, before the internet, used to look those things up and scour bookstores to find that artist. So, yes, there are people who are worth mentoring. And this brings up the other thing about uh, teachers or excuse me, uh, uh, mentors wanting to mentor you is that when they see you are going to be a part of history. Aren't you proud? Oh, That yes. Justin Sweet is one of your mentees? I, I You're am You're just like, so, yes. yeah, look at me. Yes, it's <laughs> like, look, I taught him. <laughs> I am Marshall Vandruff, yes. mentor of Justin Sweet. <laughs> there, is a, there is a good deal of that. And I've got some, some students now that I feel the same way about. I always always had students that I feel like this person is going to make a mark on the industry, they're great and it is a privilege even at junior college wages to be playing that role. So, uh, you yeah. know, if you really are seeking a mentor, make yourself attractive as a mentee and that that's going to be the difference between whether you get it or don't. And remember, some of the best artists might be some of the worst mentors.
0: Right. <laughs> that's another topic. You want to move on to the no, next one? Yeah,
1: let's move on to the next one. That, that I mean, that's time, a big man. one but...
2: Hi, uh, yes. I actually used to take a class with, with Marshall and... <gasps> One of the things regarding to uh, developing your style and uh, choosing your parents, one thing that he that he had told me that probably stuck with me even to this day was uh, I, I remember I went up and I introduced my art piece, the little thing that he wanted us to do, which was to tell a story within one picture and then you know, put that on the screen. So I decided to have one photo that I did, and I put it up there, or a uh, picture, one thing that he said was that it's not legible you can't be able to, you don't understand what's going on, like where is everything at I I know there's trees but there's not you know, and and I think if that still resonates uh, with him if if that's very important is where not only is learning the fundamentals an important thing but also um, should art students still learn about um, having clarity in their photos, um, uh, is that also important in finding the quote-unquote style as well? Um, also, if they love your podcast, Trashman, I've been listening to every episode. Um, thank you.
1: So, the question was for me. Uh, yeah, I didn't really understand the question. I think it was about how important clarity
0: is. In a photograph? That's what I heard in a photograph.
1: If it's who I think it is, uh, his priority is to be a visual storyteller. Mm -hmm. And when he put work up, the first issue was it's hard to read this picture. I have to look at it and think about it for a long time. And one of the first priorities certainly is clarity. In fact, Richard Williams said that it was the first priority and Frank and Ollie in their book the illusion of life talking about the history of Disney animation, said that they worked to make a pose look natural but also to make it read really clearly and quickly in silhouette. Cinematographers have cared about this a lot. It's not that you always do that but if you don't do that, then you put the viewer in a position where they have to think more than they should want to think so that they can follow the story. that's why clarity comes first and when I train visual storytellers, they have a whole week in a semester, there is one whole week to go through every frame and ask, can this be misinterpreted, can it be misread and if it can be, to do the work that it takes like Walt Disney talked about, don't have somebody eating a sandwich in front of their face. Because then you've got a foreshortening thing that makes it so that it reads complexly. Get it out to the side so that it reads in silhouette. That isn't a rule. There are times when deliberate ambiguity strengthens a work but it's deliberate ambiguity and not just the sloppiness of never, I I never thought whether this picture could be read by an audience quickly.
0: Okay, so what's he asking?
1: Is how Marshall pointed out, the first thing he pointed out when I put my work up is that it was hard to understand what was in the picture. I had to stop and think.
0: Okay. So, and you told him that it's important that
1: there's instant clarity in the picture. It is typically important Mm -hmm. until it becomes a device. Howard mm. Pyle and N.C. Wyeth were great at making the silhou- silhouettes read that quickly. They were also great at hiding things. Mm. Arthur Rackham was a master at hiding something. You would look at the composition, you wouldn't even notice the main thing until you looked around. Beatrix Potter, same thing. Okay, where you you have to find it. You have to do a little work. Yeah. To get. But they're it.
0: doing this deliberately. They're showing you things that they want you to see immediately. Yeah. And they're choosing those as those things that they want you to see immediately and then they're hiding things intentionally that they want you to see later as you observe.
1: Yes. And you wouldn't believe how many times visual storytelling students will put frames out there and when you try to read them, here's the game you play. Pretend like you're showing this to an 11-year-old or even a 6-year-old and they've got to look at these pictures and figure out what's going on in the story and you don't get to tell them anything. Can they look picture to picture and tell what's going on and if they can't, is there a reason And of course, in many cases, you can't figure it out Mm -hmm. and that means the visual storyteller, the artist did not do the work and is expecting the audience to do it. Yeah. And it's always more work than most people think. Some people have a knack for it, they just know how to tell a story, they know where to put the camera, they know how to make it clear. Yeah. But all of the artsy stuff you can do—that there's a visual metaphor, a hidden meaning to this picture—I've got the characters separated because they're emotionally separated. All of that stuff has to come after things have been clarified.
0: So it's about control of clarity, not necessarily making everything clear, yeah. But making sure that you are in control of what is clear and what is not. Yeah.
1: It's not just a visual storyteller's problem either, but it's mainly a visual storyteller's problem because they. audience has a certain amount of time to register the content of the image and so the master visual storyteller is aware of that and orchestrating how long it should take typically to read quickly.
0: How do we do? The answer is yes. You still believe in that? I do believe in it. (laughs) Nice.
2: Hi, my name is Lily and I live in Southern California and I wanted to know what y'all's advice. Was on building an artistic community or groups as a good way of sort of checking each other and helping everyone progress towards their artistic goals. Or if there's any, um, and I guess if there's any good art classes in SoCal for traditionally minded artists. And I hope I reached the right number. And I really love the Draftman podcast. It's awesome. Okay, bye bye.
1: Building communities. Building communities. I'm
0: guessing business. she's talking about. Like groups of people
1: near you to meet up and draw together—that kind of community. I think uh, maybe, or maybe classes. I'm not sure. But speaking of SoCal, I try to hang out in the places where. <laughs> where can she find you? Uh, I <laughs> I teach at uh, the junior college, uh, Fullerton Junior College in Fullerton on the one on Chapman, not the Cal State University of Fullerton, but Fullerton College. I'm there at least once a week teaching classes and I love that community and uh, I mm-hmm. teach up at CDA, teach at Brainstorm Inland. These are places, I, yeah. I mean, I try to hang around with students who are creating community. Yeah. So, that's the local pitch.
0: Yeah, well, that's like Orange County area, right? Yeah, it right? is. That, that's one part of SoCal. San Diego, there's Watts that's the place I went to. hmm um, Do you know LA ones?
1: Yeah, Concept Design Academy is one. Oh, oh okay, yeah, yeah. cool. And Inland Empire, uh, uh, Brainstorm Inland. Okay. Well, there's those. But what about if you want to,
0: if you're in an area where there is no community, no good school, how do you build it? How do you build your own?
1: Well, that's a big big question. It is a big question. And I have seen it done very well and have even been part of it being done well. And I've seen it done very badly because it's just like how do you make good relationships happen? There's a lot to it. Let's see, if I was going to categorize, I'd say there tend to be the fellow travelers where everybody's working on the same thing, seems like you had that at Watts where everybody's working toward...
0: Very similar goals, we're all doing the
1: same thing. Then the other extreme is where everybody's doing different things, different disciplines, different skills which is kind of what you have here. But one person is more technically oriented, one person does the cameras, you told me that it's gonna be Brandon that will do the photography stuff with because he knows cameras so well. Another person is doing a lot of the editing. So, you've got people who've got different, I'm the drawer, I'm the story idea person, I'm the one who does the dialogue.
0: That's more of a team. Yeah, it's a team. team building versus community building, right?
1: It is, but think, a team
0: is a community and you've... Yes. Yeah. But a team is a type of community.
1: A community isn't a type of team? Am I breaking it down correctly? Uh, yeah, community is not necessarily a team. Yeah. Right, right. But a team would be a community. Mm-hmm. It's as complicated as the ingredients at least. There are some teams that might work until you get the one Machiavellian person in there that will will throw it all off. There are people whose energy comes together to cooperate. There are people who their competi- competitive uh, energy can create trouble or can create benefit. So, it's... it's there, I don't know that there's any simple answer for it. Except that it is creative, it's compositional, I will make some recommendations. In fact, I don't know whether this will come out in time. The Junior College in Fullerton let me write, I've written a total of I think 14 semester courses there over the last 30 some years and one of them is called Genre and Style in Entertainment Art. I had taught it online uh, for a bit at TAD but now we've got it as a semester course. I've taught it once, I'm going to teach it again. The whole point of the class is to look at the, the big world of the genre you're interested in. It may be science fiction and fantasy, it may be, it could be uh, dragon art, it could be comic books specifically, it could be adventure comics, whatever. Mm-hmm. And to study that genre or that arena and to in the first half of the semester for your report at midterm to whine about it. What I know this genre really well, here's what I think it's got missing in it and then in the second half of the semester to essentially write your Wikipedia entry for 20 years from now about how the genre evolved because of what you contributed to the genre, that you fix this. This is Alan Moore's approach to uh, in his writing for comics, find something you're dissatisfied, get to know it with and then uh, find something you're dissatisfied with and then evolve it Change it. Then the next thing is, there was research done by Gallup on teams or on, on strengths. They tried to see how many personality strengths can you identify like ideation, diplomacy, anything that you could, some people have the gift of woo. What kind of strengths do you have? And so, one week's assignment is to go through that list of those strengths and see which ones do I think are my three or five strongest and which are my three or five weakest. And then I think it was uh, Peter Drucker uh, who said that the thing that's great about a team is that everybody's strengths become maximized and their weaknesses become irrelevant because someone else can be that spoke in the wheel. And that might be a test for whether you've got a good community uh, possibility or not. Go through the strengths finders. Uh, put out to your, your potential comrades that here I, th- or I think my uh, weaknesses here are my, my strengths, see how they agree or disagree with them and you might learn a lot but you also might find just in, in how you tag each other for your strengths and weaknesses, how well you get along. Okay. That's, that's one, I mean, this, this could be a long topic but that's one thing that if you're getting involved with a community, mm-hmm. you do, everybody does play a role.
0: I think if you're creating a community, if you're trying to create this group of people that you meet up with regularly to help you on your journey, um, I think someone has to provide the environment. Where, where do you meet up? Um, so, and someone has to provide other resources or things that are required. Like for example, if, you, if you're into life drawing, Someone has to hire the models and uh, provide benches and stuff like that um, in order for this to even exist. So if if you're willing to take on that role, that could be a big hurdle that you're solving for your community, um, and that that will attract people to come and hang out with you. Yeah, go ahead. It's an hear.
1: attitude of con- contribution too.
0: Yeah. If you're trying to create a group of people who are worth hanging out with, you need to offer something. Um, you, you, they need a reason to come hang out with you. Yeah, you, your personality, your knowledge can be that contribution but they don't know that until they actually start hanging out with you and get to know you. Yeah. So, at first you need to give people a reason to, uh, to hang out with you like, hey, we have a free model or a model just pitching two dollars come draw or hey, meet up at the local bar, have a drink and have fun and ske- bring your sketchbook and we're just gonna have fun and we're artists and we'll talk. That could also be thing. You don't have to pay for a, a place and a model. You can just meet up at a lounge and, and sketch.
1: Um, but there's something in it for everybody. Uh, Lily, there's been research done on this. In fact, The Great Courses I think has at least one course that more than one course on this kind of thing, but Michael Dew's course on uh, conflict management cites quite a bit of research of what makes people get along better and not. And it's, it can get complicated where you break it down into goals and motivations and and uh, emotions and all of the literal components like the elements of art. There are elements that are involved in having community work. So it may be worth studying, but sometimes people who don't know anything about it intellectually, they just play well with others. Yeah. So, as I... don't know I if she w- wants
0: to study the, this intellectually, I think she just wants some ad- like action items, some
1: advice to get a community started. Yes. Well, there, here is one reason though to, to study it because there's no way that they're gonna, you're gonna have four or five people get together and everything's gonna go smoothly. And so, to understand right. a little bit about group dynamics and that's where you have to have a team mom
0: yeah hopefully some the person or hopefully you can have this be a healthy environment where people can trust that they they'll go and they won't be judged and um I mean you can be you can critique each other, but you're not gonna be judging them in a unhealthy way and you're not yeah. gonna be insulted and that is a healthy environment where you can come and you can grow and you can help each other. But somebody has to lead that, like you're saying, and someone who understands, I think, um, uh, who understands people needs to be in charge of this. Yeah.
1: There's some people, some that have no gift for people but they are great contributors to a team because they will disappear and do the work. Uh, All of this is to say, I think it's beyond our scope of trying to simplify what will make the community work. Yeah. And it it may be beyond your question. Of what you really cared about, except to say that if it's working, great. If you've got several friends, as happens sometimes, I think in *Anne of Green Gables*, she met when they when you, sometimes when you're young, you meet another kid, and you just immediately become fast friends, yeah, and and you're uh, you're a team. Uh, whereas w- often it doesn't happen that way, and it doesn't really take intellect so much as it takes instinct to know with this person I need to be more Mm -hmm. assertive, with this person I need to be uh, more malleable. So, if it works, great. I can't tell you in any simple thing, in any simple way how to make it work except that I've seen a lot that haven't worked and a lot that have.
0: Yeah. And then as far as how do you find that friend, And I think it should grow naturally. Like start with a few people figure out what you guys want and then it'll kind of grow from there based on what everybody in that group wants. Mm-hmm. Um, if you want to make it official, you can go on like meetup.com and you can post a thing and then mm-hmm. people meet up with you if, if there's enough people around your area. But if, I think if you just know one person that will go and do this thing with you, then maybe word of mouth you guys could get slowly get more people to join and, and it'll
1: become what you all want it to become. Mm-hmm. Um, in my life, it happens more than anything else in classrooms just because I spend so much time in classrooms.
0: That's a natural yeah. starting point. Students, they already have a, a common interest. Right. Yeah. Cool. So, thank you guys for sending the voicemails. I had fun yes. doing a, a pure voicemail episode. We should I'm do glad this again. i we this, yeah. It, it was a little more relaxing. I didn't have to prepare for anything. Yeah. We're gonna move on to some thangs. Okay. Stan. I got a good one. What's your thing? I finished reading a book. Yeah. Actually, I listened to it. Okay. I like to say reading it because it makes me sound smarter. Okay. You know? But I know. If I listened to it, it's like... I still think you're smart. As if I don't know how to read.
1: No, it's okay. I know you know how.
0: (laughs) Yeah. You're secure. The whole whole audiobook thing is a a new thing that people still, from your generation, don't know about, right? Let me me give you the 20-second (laughs) answer.
1: Oh, Jesus. I'm sorry I said that. There used to be books on tape. Oh, you're right. I'm an idiot. Yeah, I got into we're those. We're cutting that some, part out. Yeah,
0: yeah what That's a... That's a millennial comment right there. Idiot. I thought I was insulting your generation and I, I was just insulting myself <laughs> with my ignorance. Yeah, you sure
1: were. <laughs> Let's move right on as if it didn't happen.
0: Okay, so I finished listening to The Art of Learning. I mentioned it in a previous episode. Mm-hmm. Because I thought, I really thought someone needed it. I think it was Jeremy? No, it Oh, no, Jeremy. no. It was Ra- Raphael. Raphael. Yeah. He, yeah. I mentioned to him, Art of Learning by Josh Waiteskin. He is the subject of Searching for Bobby Fischer, mm-hmm. is the movie about the child prodigy for, ch- for chess. So, he was the actual kid that got really good at chess at a really young age. Um, I think at around like 20-ish, he stopped playing chess professionally and he went on to do, um, he went on to martial arts and he got really good at that. He's a world champion at that as well. And I think around that time he started seeing um, similarities between learning how to play chess as a kid and learning martial arts as an adult and he started connecting it and he started formulating these theories of how to learn. Um, And that's what this book was about. It's about how to reach mastery and how to perform at such high levels.
1: Can you synopsize a few of the major points? I can try. Or even if you just take out some of the things that made a dominant impression.
0: Yes. So, uh, one of the things in the beginning was that really made a big impact on me probably because I have a son was um, how parents really determine a really big part of how good their child, how good of a learner their child becomes. And that is they they fall into one of two groups. The child either uh, associates their successes and their failures with talent, like if someone is a good dancer, the parents reward them for being good at dancing. Hmm. I'm like, oh, you're such a good dancer or man, you you have such a knack for drawing, you're so gifted at this. You get it, yeah. right? They they don't give the child credit for it, they they give nature credit for yeah. this.
1: Yeah, t- the talent the nature versus nurture or the growth mindset versus fixed mindset thing. Yes.
0: And the other side of it is they don't focus on that talent at all. They just say, wow, you worked so hard and your dance performance was so good because you worked so hard to prepare for it. Mm -hmm. They focus on the work. They focus on what it took to get there. Even if they are naturally were more gifted at it, Mm -hmm. they don't focus on that, they just focus on the work that it takes. And so, the child associates success with hard work instead of associating success with a thing that just happens to them. Yeah. And that's a huge thing that I got from the book.
1: I've heard this from educational theory too that it's always been Don Richardson used to when people did work, he'd say, you're good, you're talented. And I never doubted when he said that, that he was speaking from great insight about having seen how talented people work. But the newest wisdom is to pull the attention away from whether you're good, you're talented to the kind of commitment you made to carrying through with the work because then you're praising the thing. That's the, those are the embers to blow on to get the fire going. Mm-hmm. Not to just compliment what you were given but compliment what you brought to it.
0: Yeah. And it's not just associating success with hard work, it's also that they're, uh, they're a lot better at recovering from failure when they have that mentality mm-hmm. because they they don't, when they fail, they don't think, oh, I am bad. Mm-hmm. They associate it with the work. They think, oh, I probably could have prepared better. Yeah. And they don't feel bad about themselves. They don't associate themselves as failures anymore. Um, so, that's huge because when you think of yourself as a failure, it's debilitating and you might just stop and quit. And a huge part of getting good at something is just
1: not quitting just yeah. keep going and keep, keep improving. That's been a big theme in our discussions is the, uh, I don't know who originated the term fixed mindset and growth mindset. Do you? No, I don't. If we find out who it is, we should probably post it. But yeah. I was only introduced to that uh, in about 2010-2011 when Dorian Aiton did a presentation on the Mm -hmm. difference between the fixed mindset and the growth mindset. And the fixed mindset says, I was never any good at that. Mm -hmm. Therefore, I'm not good at that. Therefore, I've uh, absolved myself of any responsibility to work on it. Right. Yeah. And the the growth mindset says, I like that enough to where I think I will get good at it and it makes Mm -hmm. a choice and takes responsibility.
0: Yeah. So, that's one thing. He talks about being, um, getting good at being in the soft zone.
1: What's the soft zone? It's
0: a mental state. Where distractions don't bother you, so you're like a bl- a leaf uh, or a, a blade of grass. The wind just makes you bend, and then you come back and you 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 blow with the wind. You don't blow away. You don't break. So basically, dealing with distractions. He he was talking about, and this is more of a performance thing, I think, not learning, but they're associated. Mm-hmm. Um, so he was talking about how when he was in a competition. A lot of competitors, chess competitors would try to distract him with like some tapping or -hmm. kick him under the table Mm -hmm. and that would instantly put him in a a zone of, you know, he would be mad at them and that would just break his whole game and he would lose just because he was distracted. And so, being able to not be bothered by that Mm -hmm. allowed him to perform better he was soft. And then another, the next stage of that is to actually learn how to... Use that to your advantage, like how?
1: I don't remember. <laughs> okay. But use to use go to use that, distractions but... to your advantage. You mean, or to use? Yes. This? Yeah.
0: yeah, I know that one of the things he mentioned was that when people would try to distract him, or like he went in martial arts, they would headbutt him when the when like the the referee wasn't watching, and he just didn't let it bother him, and he would actually just smile at the opponent. And, and just be extra nice to them afterwards mm-hmm. and that would get into the opponent's head like, what? And so that pisses off the person who headbutted mm-hmm. and then that gets them into the, the zone of, of frustration. Uh-huh. So he's using it to using his advantage. I think that was one of the examples he gave. Yeah. Um, so that, that's more of a one-on-one thing, an example mm-hmm. for one-on-one but it could be applied to, uh, you know, art where you're a solo performer. Okay. Yeah. Anything there, else? There's so much. There is so there's much. So much. This I don't is, know yeah, if people, I should. Get, we could do a full episode on this if if you wanna. If you ever read the book,
1: maybe we could. I would love to could, read the book. Um, you had me read the Talent Code yeah. alongside with you a few years ago, and that had a big ef- a effect on me. Too. We could do an episode on the Talent yeah. Code. I want to reread that one as well. Yeah, I want to reread huge. it too.
0: Oh, Stress and Recovery was another big one in that. Tell us. So. When you're performing, let's say you, you're going for eight hours, you're working hard and then you know that the, tomorrow you're gonna have to do it again and you have another hard day ahead of you, you need to make sure that you have a big enough period of recovery um, because
1: you're not gonna perform well. So, right. he,
0: he talked a lot about just being good at
1: recovery. And any, any little hints about what help us, what will help us be good at recovery and timing it is what you just mentioned.
0: Well, time is, is a good one but it's not just time, it's figuring out what will help you recover, creating a routine for yourself to get back into the zone and also just being aware when you need to recover. He was talking about in chess where there were certain moves that he would spend 15 minutes on thinking about and after that his brain was so exhausted that he would falter afterwards. So, he would need to notice when he wasn't thinking clearly anymore and just take five minutes of not thinking about anything and just recover and come back or go outside, run up the stairs, come back down. That, um, that aerobic uh, quality, you know, a little bit of exercise, getting mm-hmm. your lungs going, your heart going would bring that mental clarity back. He comes back, sits down, washes his face, mm-hmm. things like that would help him bring come
1: back. Just being aware when you need to recover. Yeah, and he he this is stuff he figured out out of his own experience. Yeah. Yeah, Dr. Eddie O'Connor in The Psychology of Performance has a chapter on burnout and the need for recovery. It's a really sobering chapter because burnout is a, an, a real technically designate, designated condition that can be very difficult to recover from. So, yep. he talks in there about the stages of burnout, these have been studied, the uh, ways to protect from it uh, in the stages, ways to recover from it but that chapter is mm-hmm. is worthwhile to anyone who feels like they're headed toward it, or who's going into a profession.
0: Yeah.
1: Like they're gonna be a surgeon or they're gonna be something where it's, it's it, they're famous for burnout. Yeah. To, be, to know about it in advance. So, he is speaking from his own experience how to maximize when you've yeah. worked really hard at something, how to bounce back from it.
0: Yeah. And I think a lot of it isn't just like the obvious like, yeah, go get some sleep. It's um, being aware of your mental state at any given moment, Be- being self-conscious in a good way um, and being honest with yourself when you need to just take a break.
1: Like in yoga where they say, listen to your body. Yeah. Just pay attention. And
0: Yeah, y- being and good at reading your body yeah. um, and feeding it. Yeah, what great. It, what it needs. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff but it's
1: it's a good read. That's my thing. Well, that sounds like a worthy thing. Yeah. Thang. Thang. Sorry. Thing. Sorry. I'm gonna do that for the next hundred years. <laughs> Did you have a thing yet? You... I... You prompted me to one. Okay, cool. This, like bullets over Broadway, is <laughs> another 1990s. It might even be the same year, 1994. This is a film by a first time director, Boaz Yakin. he had written, he'd written I think a movie for Clint Eastwood and this is his first time directing. It is an unknown and underrated film called Fresh. It has almost no stars in it except Samuel Jackson Mm -hmm. who has a small part in it who plays Fresh's dad. I will warn you in advance, it is rated R for brutal violence. You should know that and steer away from it if that's going to bother you. I will tell you as a story. You do not want to know the story points because it is a corker of a story and uh, not a high production uh, value uh, film, but a really well directed film. Film to tell the story. And the reason I mention it is that this kid, in his relationship with his dad, it's very much based on chess and chess mm. strategies. And one of the things it showcases is that the strategy for one thing might not be the strategy for another thing. So, even just as a case study in how you get good at something, how you may be good at one uh, something uh, that is slow motion like Pink Floyd was great at all of the engineering that went into those albums. But then you are going to find that other people, Christopher Parkening or Andres Segovia, they just pick up their instrument and they play an entire uh, concert. They are two very different things even though they are both music. Some people are better at the slow motion thing, some people are better at the fast motion thing. Whatever you're better at, you should probably study the other or practice the other but then you figure you're gonna run with your showcase with the thing that you're, you are uh...
0: That reminds me of gonna... another point from the book. Yeah,
1: go go ahead because that... That, that that's just my thing. I warn you against it but Fresh is a film that I very much like, very satisfying film.
0: He has a um, I think a full chapter on slowing down time. Tell us. So, you know how people talk about like very key moments in their life when something dramatic happened and they saw things in slow motion. Mm-hmm. Like, a, like a car accident or, or something, you know, something just just like pauses time because or not pauses it, but slows it down and they're seeing things. Yeah, so it doesn't actually slow down time, right? Your brain just catches more details yeah. in that moment and so, it feels slower to you because of how much information your brain captured in that moment. And so, he kind of uses that to talk about how some people can get so good at something, practice every frame of an action that it's almost like slowing down time. In martial arts this can apply, I mean, quite literally. When uh, a certain maneuver is executed, there's like a, a choice every like half millisecond that they could make uh, that could leave in a different direction and if they've perfected every of those, every one of those paths, they can almost slow down time because they're so good at the instinct. Am I explaining this? Yes, did, did you did I feel you see, like I'm blabbering. Did,
1: no, did you see, <laughs> did you see Guy Ritchie's Sherlock Holmes movies? The two, Sherlock Holmes and, and uh, and is A Game of the Shadows. Is that the
0: one on Netflix? It's, the it, one that has like five
1: episodes? No, no, no. This is, this is not TV, these are movies. Robert Downey Jr. and Jude Law played. Uh, Holmes and Watson. Oh, I think so. I you think know, I did. I didn't see the the first one because people said you like to Sherlock Holmes too much You'll be upset. It's not what, Cumberbatch. No, no, no. This was for the movies. This was okay uh, But uh, when the second one came out people said you should see this This is a this is a worthwhile movie and I saw it and then saw it again and saw it again And then went back to I love those movies even if they are cotton candy uh, but they have a portion in there that no, I've never seen anybody do where Holmes at the beginning looks at the scenario that he's gonna fight in and goes through it in his mind in slow motion. Yes. And, and then acts it out and it was just, I just love watching those scenes. It, it makes you feel like you could be a genius. That's a really
0: good visual. I think I have seen that. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe in, the, in Cumberbatch has that same scene mm-hmm. but th- that's a very good vi- visualization of what's actually happening because he has trained his brain to pick up on all these clues so quickly that it's it's more of an instinct. He mm-hmm. doesn't actually have to look for them. Yeah. And so for us, for a normal person, it would take hours to do what he just did in yeah. 2 seconds. Yeah. And so it's like slowing down time. That
1: whole thing about slowing down time is really interesting. And yeah. also the the opposite of it that we don't want to just use the technology to take something that happens fast and slow it down on film so we can see the individual droplet of water make all the waves. We also want to take something that takes a long time, like a tree growing or a flower blossoming, and make it happen quickly so that we get a macro view of how things happen. So, that's where you step back. Uh, Charles and Ray Eames did a film called Powers of Ten, where Charles Eames was big on get up over it and see the great big context, get down into it because God is in the details and it's both. Yeah. So, those, okay, you've certainly convinced me on taking so a whole episode things. to talk about the Josh Waitzkin book. And, yeah. And unpack this stuff. Another
0: thing that he, uh, for recording it, he, uh, he recorded him and his martial arts partner. Um, they, they got to such a high level together that they didn't really even know why some things worked anymore because mm-hmm. they knew each other so well. Mm-hmm. That sometimes something happened and all, and one of them just threw down the other one. Yeah. and they're like, "Yeah, I have no idea what like how that one worked." And then, and they would record it, slow it down, and see you know fr- certain frames and what happened. And then they would be like, "Oh, okay, that's what happened." And then they would practice that specific thing. Yeah.
1: Isn't that exciting? I mean, it yeah. just, it's thrilling. It makes you feel like there there is a way to get better and better and better to where you just you come up to a level that's yeah. beyond what you imagine. Slowly just
0: fine-tuning every little element to the point where you don't even understand what's happening.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Your brain is just making decisions that you don't understand and then you film that and you analyze that and then you make that into something you understand and you keep practicing
1: until your brain gets even better. Yes. It, yeah. This is about human potential. Yes. It is You know, it's, it, that's, it well, that's exactly. what makes it so exciting is that I can be way better than I thought I could be. Yeah. I'd like to throw out a question to the viewers okay. and listeners. Stan has brought up the subject of devoting an episode to synopsizing Josh Waitkin's Waitzkin. Waitzkin's Wait- book, yeah. The Art of Learning. That kind of interests me to have a whole podcast on it or other, maybe things and other resources that cluster around it. Yeah. I would love to do that with a few things, uh, some of these great courses. Uh, I, I don't know what about the legalities are but if you are interested in having podcasts devoted to some one thing, one course, one uh, book report so to speak and give the main points and opinions and a little bit, if that interests you, let us know uh, because we've talked about it, we haven't really been sure whether we should devote an entire podcast to a subject.
0: I think we should once we have something that we're interested, like really interested in. But the
1: art of learning is one
0: of them. It's definitely
1: one of them. And earlier uh, in a previous episode, we talked about the George Leonard's book, Mastery.
0: Yes. Um, And also you brought up, um, gosh, the, the great course Psychology of Performance.
1: Psychology of Performance. I
0: bought that one, I started listening yeah. to it. Once I finish it, don't know when I will but yeah. once I do, we could we could do it on that one as well.
1: I'd love to do it on that one. That one, I lived in that one for two months and it was just uh, so rich with uh, research. Mm-hmm. And, and also, it, it's like the human potential thing, just so exciting to think that you really can get better and better at something if you are going about it the right way. Yeah.
0: Right now, I started re-listening to... Uh, how to make friends and influence people. Daryl Carnegie? Yeah. yeah, It's a classic. Yeah, it's a classic. It's a good one to re-listen to every once in a while.
1: Very anecdotal, very uh, I, I remember yeah, it's, it's, I feel like the world would be a better place if everybody knew what it was that he had to say about relationships. How many relationships. times have you read that one? I've, I, I have been exposed to it since my childhood and I read it when I was younger and then spent years uh, feeling guilty for not having uh, applied it. But I've tried to revisit it recently, but...
0: I feel like you're a, a living example of a lot of those rules. Oh,
1: well, that's my mom. That wasn't something I consciously <laughs> uh, really? learned. No, my mom just was, uh, in fact, when I told you about my mom one time, it was Comic-Con last year and I was describing what she was like, you kept saying, that's like you. That's like I was describing yeah. all, of, all of her virtues so I was saying, yeah, you didn't know my mom. Okay. She was, uh, yeah, she, she just had, uh, she was just really a, an appreciator and celebrator of people and I don't feel like like I'm that way but it's cuz I'm comparing myself to Eleanor your mom yeah okay cool. are we done
0: i think so cool well thank you guys for listening yes and watching please give us five stars on iTunes sponsor this episode and leave a comment below of what again what was it again what
1: would you yeah. would you would you want podcasts entirely devoted to a book report or a course report or give us some ideas yeah things that you really want
0: yeah